0: As promised, we begin this morning in the book of Colossians. Okay, we've made our way all the way through Ephesians. We've made our way all the way through Philippians. Now we are going into Colossians this morning. And I entitle this Bible study, The Great Encourager. And we'll be looking at the first 14 verses of chapter 1. Let me ask you a question. Are you more of a thermometer or a thermostat when it comes to to the climate of another person's psyche. Here's what I mean. Are you content to observe another person's struggle in life and report back their failures, their shortcomings, the problems that they have, much like a thermometer would tell you the temperature of the room? Or are you willing to assist them in rising above their circumstances, their struggle, by encouraging them? by accentuating the positive things that they are doing in their life. Author and teacher William Arthur Ward said this. He said, A true friend knows your weaknesses but shows you your strengths. Feels your fears but fortifies your faith. Sees your anxieties but frees your spirit. Recognizes your disabilities but emphasizes your possibilities. That is thermostatic living a characteristic of one that we might call a great encourager. The great encourager will find somebody doing something right and encourage them by calling it out, commenting on it, giving thanks for it. It's one of the expressions of love that is so refreshing to anybody who is in a struggle to find the truth, to find the beauty in, in their life and affirm it back to them and give them like a cool drink of water. And, and we're not talking about disingenuous flattery here. We're talking about simply helping somebody through a sober look at what's going on in their life and helping them to see the positive things about it and to, and to encourage them. Jesus Christ is the ultimate great encourager. That still small voice that can come to a broken and contrite heart and speak into our lives encouragement and to help us to know that he is there with us This is the wonderful thing about walking each day with Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul followed in that example that Jesus Christ had, that beautiful quality of being an encourager to those that are in the midst of struggle. You know, as Paul was principally involved in establishing the church in the regions of Asia, Minor and Europe, this gift that he possessed of encouragement and exhortation was critical because, you know, the church was was this little infant thing. It was like tending to this little grapevine and, and trying to keep it protected from the elements and keep it well watered and fed. And Paul was doing that for the church, and his encouragement as he went around to these different churches spoke to their spiritual development, their spiritual progress urging them to go on in spite of difficulties, persecutions, and doubts that any of us would have. And so we're going to really focus this morning on the first 14 verses of chapter one, because there Paul opens this great letter with words of encouragement and a prayer to fortify these people. Now, just a few words about the book before we launch into it. Uh, This book, the book of Colossians, was written by Paul. It's estimated somewhere between the year 58 and 62 AD. And the occasion for writing the letter, as we go through it, you're going to see this come come uh, to front and center, but it was to dispel a heresy that had entered that church. It's known by many different names, but, but the one you've probably heard is the Gnostic heresy. And this, basically all of the heresies that were experienced by the early church had to do with depreciating and taking attention away from the sufficiency, the all-sufficiency of the grace of God that was shed abroad to us through the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Everything that came in to attack the early church had to do with taking people's minds off of the all-sufficiency of Christ and placing it right back where it was before Jesus came, on doing works, on having special knowledge, on living according to a special code. And the Gnostic heresy typified all that. As we go through the letter, we'll bring out more of what the qualities of that heresy was. But uh, for right now, uh, let's just talk for a moment about the church in Colossae. It's actually not one that Paul founded at all. Uh, The church was actually founded by at least two men. Uh, Epiphras was one and Philemon, whose name is on one of the other epistles that that Paul wrote. um, He was the other. He actually hosted the church in his house. And it's believed that these two men heard Paul preach the gospel during the three years that Paul was in Ephesus. Because Paul did found the church in Ephesus and he preached there for, for three years and these men who visited there heard the word received jesus christ as their lord and savior were on fire for jesus christ went back to the city of colossi and there they founded this church and it's when uh epiphras later came and met paul in rome while paul was in prison that he shares with paul uh, first of all all the great things that are happening in this new church But then he also clues in Paul about this heretical teaching that came in that was distinctly different and maybe even diametrically opposed to what Paul had taught the church. And so Paul is now writing this letter and the theme of the letter is the preeminence of Jesus Christ and his all sufficiency in the life of the believer. This is something we should never forget. We should remind ourselves of it continually that it's all about Jesus. That last song we sang, I Speak Jesus, this isn't a word faith song or anything, but there is power in the name because Jesus is all there is, and thank God it's all we need. There is no other way. I am the way, the truth, the life, says Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one mediator between man and God, the, the man, Jesus Christ, And so this is the great theme of this letter. And the letter follows the formula that we've already seen in the Pauline epistles. The first half of the letter is a deep soak in doctrine and theology. And then the second half of the letter is all about practical life application. And that's the way we'll see this letter square out. But he opens up with this beautiful uh, session of encouragement and prayer. And so I ask if you would, please stand with me. And right now we're going to read the first eight verses and then we will uh, move on to verses 9 and 14 later on in the Bible study. So here's what it says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying always for you. "'Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus "'and of your love for all the saints, "'because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, "'of which you heard before the word of truth of the gospel, "'which has come to you as it is also in all the world "'and is bringing forth fruit, "'as it is also among you since the day you heard "'and knew the grace of God in truth. "'As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow saint,' who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who also declared to, you, to us your love in the spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Let's pray. Father, all those things that Paul prayed for for the Colossians, Lord, we pray ourselves. I pray over these people, Lord that we would have that spiritual understanding, that we would be encouraged in the hope that we have in Jesus, that we would have our knowledge increased and deepened about our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray that all those things would come true in this morning's Bible study, Father. I pray a blessing over your people, Lord, as they eagerly await to hear your word. I pray as, as the pastor over this flock, Lord, that you would enable me to speak nothing but the pure truth to your precious people i ask this in jesus name amen amen you may be seated well we've already seen this in a couple of the pauline epistles we've already studied of uh paul starting out the letter by wishing them grace and peace you see it there in verse two he says grace and peace from our god from god our father and the lord jesus christ um and as we've said before the ordering of grace and peace very deliberate. And here's the reason: until we have come to faith, we are at enmity with God. The Bible describes us as being enemies of God. We don't have peace with God. And so Paul is first praying over them the grace of God, because through the grace of God we we come to the family of faith. We lay down our pride we open our hearts, we confess our sins, we come before the Lord, his spirit indwells us, we have have the grace of God shed shed upon us. And in the grace of God, that enmity that existed, that separation between us and God has been removed and now we have what Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, peace with God. Once having received peace with God, we then can have the peace of god in our lives and so when paul tells them grace and peace be with you he's really recognizing that beautiful transaction that happens when we get saved we first receive the grace of god and then we are given the peace of god and it's a wonderful thing the only thing that's different in in the pauline epistles is in the three epistles that are known as the pastoral epistles because he, he's writing to pastors about pastoring, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. He adds mercy, grace, peace, and mercy. And honestly, having been a pastor now for almost 20 years, I'm very glad that mercy is added to those greetings. I can, I can identify with that, and I appreciate it very much. Um, and so he starts out by giving thanks. He says there in verse uh, 3, We give thanks to God and our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. He's, He's giving thanks to the Lord for these precious believers in Colossae. And I think we could all agree that one of the greatest blessings that God has given to us as children of God is the other children of God. The most encouraging time of my week is coming here. To come here and to see you to, to share life with you, to hear about your lives, to, to share things going on in my lives, to share my granddaughter up here worshiping the Lord. Uh, uh, you know, we, we have a little guitar thing going on for Christmas. I bought her this. It's actually a ukulele, but she thinks it's a guitar. And so we play guitar. And uh, and, and just just being in the beautiful wash of God's spirit and God's love amongst the other believers, it, it is a wonderful thing. And And, uh, and Paul is is giving thanks for them and it's no doubt because their love for for the Lord encourages him he has the knowledge that wow some of the fruit from the church i planted in Ephesus spread over it spilled out on this other city i think Colossae is like 100 miles from Ephesus and and the the, the the grace of god that that came to inhabit the church in Ephesus spills over to another city and now these other people are in love with the Lord and this is just something that Paul is so touched by that he gives he gives thanks to the Lord for it now he starts the words of encouragement picking up in verse 4 he says since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints now we know that uh, Romans chapter 10 verse 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith doesn't come necessarily from a moving concert. I mean, I, I think there's a, a, maybe an overemphasis in the modern Christian church on these huge worship events where it's a gigantic conference, or concert rather, with all the uh, things that make for a modern day concert, smoke, lights, uh, fireworks, and all that. Faith doesn't come by that. I mean, that's a great way to celebrate your faith, but it's not a great way to come to faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And as we'll see, when we get down to verse seven, there is a man, a faithful man named Epaphras, who having heard the word of God being preached in Ephesus was so on fire for the Lord. He, he did experience how God can change a life. You know, nobody knows your life better than you. That's why I say you're the world's greatest expert on your testimony, and so we all have a personal experience of what God did in our lives. And Epiphras, having had that experience, he preached the word to these people. And by hearing the word, uh, they, they, they became believers. And, and so their faith grew out of hearing the gospel. And I just want to say there is no shortage of people who will express to you that they have faith. What they're not so sure about is the object of their faith there are those who have faith in just spirituality in general you've probably had the same experience i have had where i'll ask people you know where they might stand with the lord or or it comes into the conversation somehow and they'll say well i don't follow any religion or i don't necessarily adhere myself to any one god but i'm a spiritual person and they have faith in their spirituality uh, there are those that have faith in a set of doctrines this this was in large part what what jesus was trying to help the pharisees see is that you know a set of doctrines is only important to the extent that it points you back to the object of faith but there are many in our midst and it's not just in one religion it's it's really in many different religions where the faith is actually placed in following doctrine and ritual and that gives them a sense of being right with god and then there's the most extreme case of all there are those that have faith in faith people going through something difficult and their good friend says you just got to have faith they never finish the sentence in what in who you just got to have faith just believe okay but is there a reason why i should believe you know this this is the thing um what we what we what we have faith in the object of our faith is Jesus Christ the person of Jesus Christ not even as much as things that we heard about Jesus things that we've been taught about Jesus no our object of faith is Jesus i direct your attention to john chapter 3 now the greatest most famous verse in that chapter is john 316 but it really helps you to understand John three sixteen if you read the two verses immediately preceding it. Here's what John three fourteen through 16 says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, you might ask yourself, especially if you're not quite as familiar with the Old Testament, what's all this Moses serpent on a pole thing? <laughs> it brings to mind my wife, where the serpent is always under the hoe, not on the pole, but under the hoe. She's, anything that slithers, she will kill. If she can get her body on top of it, I don't care if it's a python or an anaconda, it's going to die. So what's this deal with Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness? Well, that comes right out of Numbers chapter 21. And in that chapter, the children of Israel making their way through the wilderness and they are rebelling against God. They're, they're moaning, they're complaining, should have stayed in Egypt, should have stayed where the food was good. And the Lord brings judgment upon them in the form of these fiery serpents. And these fiery serpents are biting the people and many of them are dying. And they come to Moses and they plead with Moses, please implore the Lord to give us a way out of this. And so the Lord tells Moses, I want you to fashion a serpent out of bronze. Bronze is always the metal associated with judgment. And I want you to affix it to a pole. And when the people are being tormented by these serpents, I want you to just hold that pole up. And those who will look upon that pole, that serpent on the pole, will be relieved from the death that would come from the bite of that serpent. That becomes a paradigm, a beautiful metaphor for the situation we're in. We're born into condemnation. We are born, as I said earlier, at enmity with God. And in that state, we, are des- we have been bitten by the snake. And that is a, that's a fatal bite. Now, it might take you five years, 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years to ultimately come to the place where that bite takes you down. But it is 100% certain. Unless, and that's why it says there, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, that reference, you'll see the New Testament commentates on itself, that lifting up of Jesus is literally... Jesus on the cross, because they would lay the cross down on the ground, put the man on it, affix him to the cross, and then raise up the cross, because it is in the, in the vertical position that the nastiness of the cross does its work. Because the cross was a means by which you affixed asphyxiated slowly and painfully. And so when we look upon Jesus on the cross, and we put our faith in that, just as the people in in the wilderness had to put their faith in that serpent on a pole were saved that's what we put our faith in that's what paul is commending these people concerning their faith and this is why it was so egregious for paul to hear about a heresy coming into the church trying to move the people off of this all-sufficiency of jesus christ and put it on anything else The enemy who's trying to keep us from Jesus, he doesn't care what you put your faith in. He doesn't care if you put your faith in you. He doesn't care if you put your faith in a crystal. And if you do, you can get one right next door here. They sell them. Um, And please don't. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul is commending them because they do. We know whenever any kind of teaching speaks to anything other than the Son of God, deity, being fully human, that is Jesus the Christ. Any heresy that, that depreciates that concept is heresy. Is is spirit of Antichrist? John said it in 1 John four three. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So, so he commends them for their faith. Now, in verses five and six, we read because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth now here he's speaking about the gospel the the word gospel means good news doesn't it and we as Christians got to be very very careful how we bring the good news to people Sometimes if we don't catch ourselves, it could sound like we're reading them a criminal indictment. And yes, by all means, people need to understand they're sinners, but, but they really need to come away with the headline, which is Jesus died for your sins, sins that you have just as we all do. And he has taken away those sins through his atoning death. And you need to put your faith and trust in him. And this is where, this is where the hope comes from. We, we don't have hope. As in a hope so. You buy a lottery ticket. Oh, I hope I win. You have nothing to fortify that hope. In fact, you have mathematics. That actually tells you that there is no hope. (laughs) But you hope anyway. It's a hope so. Oh, I hope I win. We have hope in a finished work here here's how paul summarized the gospel if you would just flip back to first corinthians chapter 15 and paul gives this beautiful capsulized summary of the bullseye of the of the gospel he says in in first corinthians chapter 15 picking up in verse 3 he says for i delivered to you first of all that which i also received that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures wow that's good news and that he was buried and that he rose again. Oh my gosh, it got even better. The, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas and then the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Can't argue with that. That's a historic fact. Our hope is based on a historic fact of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James Then, by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. To know that Paul, who's writing all this theology in these various letters we've been studying, is an eyewitness to the risen Christ, fortifies our hope like nothing else. We have hope in Jesus because we have heard the gospel. We have hope in Jesus because we have heard the truth. Jesus Christ, before he went to the cross, as he is in the garden in agony and he raises up a prayer, he prays first for himself. Then he prays for his apostles and disciples. And then he prays for every single one of us in this room. He says in John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In other words, what he's saying is, Lord, Set these people apart because they now know the truth. And because they know the truth, they have hope. And this is the hope that he's commending the, um, the Colossians because they heard it, they believed it, they received it. And their hope has built a church out of nothing in the city of Colossae. He also is commending them there in verse 6 of the fruit that's come forth from their ministry. He says, Which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day that you heard and you knew, etc. So this, this fruit has grown up out of their belief in the gospel. This is the way the word of God works in people you recall the sower and the seed parable that jesus told the different kinds of ground first of all the seed represents the word of god the different kinds of ground represents the condition of the heart upon which the seed is cast and notice that it's really only the cultivated the broken ground in which the seed can take root and then produce fruit it's the broken ground. It's the broken and contrite heart that God loves. Because only in a posture of brokenness, and I don't mean you have to be like at the end of your rope, you know, you're, you're standing there with your toes curled over a ledge, and, and uh, woe is me. I mean, after this week's stock market crash, maybe you're one of those people. It's like, oh, woe is me. There's nothing. It doesn't mean that necessarily. What it means is that you have come to the realization that you cannot save yourself. No amount of success in the material world, no amount of power, no amount of influence. I don't care how good you look, how tall you are, or how much hair you have. None of that can save you. And so when you come to the realization that I am a needy, broken person And I am headed for a condemnation that will eternally separate me from God. And that moment that you cry out to him, you are now in a position to bear fruit. This is why we learn in scripture that he who has been forgiven much loves much. Some of the greatest ministers of the gospel who have blessed countless people have brought relief into countless lives are people who themselves were forgiven so very much and were so very broken. Chief among them, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul didn't didn't describe himself as the captain of the apostles, as the principal writer of the New Testament, as the one that you should listen to above all others. No, Paul actually called himself the chief of sinners, the chief of sinners. And we have testimony to that in the fact that he officiated the death of the very first martyr of the church. And he admitted in Scripture that his focus before coming to the Lord was to hunt down members of the nascent church, have them imprisoned, and in many cases executed for their faith. Can you imagine bearing that burden? Can you imagine bearing that burden? And yet... Paul's life bore so much fruit. Then he commends in, uh, in verses seven and eight, this man that I mentioned earlier, Epaphras. As you have also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. Epaphras came from Colossae to tell Paul of all the wonderful things going on in this church. But Epaphras was also the one that heard Paul in Ephesus and then brought the water of life to his city. And this is something, you know, we're not all called to be pastors. Honestly, I never thought I was until I was. I I I would never have imagined doing this until I was doing it. But we all can do the work of the of a preacher. Let, let me tell you what I mean. The Bible tells us paul tells us in one of his epistles that we are to do the work of the evangelist now we know we're not all evangelists i don't consider myself gifted in evangelism my gifting i think is teaching i admire people who are gifted evangelists but i'm still called to do the work of the evangelist i try and do that every sunday we're also called paul said in in romans 10 14 how will people hear without a preacher when you come here and you learn the word of God, just as you're learning now, the word of God, Paul says that, that pastors are there to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We can, we can tend to fall into that notion that, well, he's, that guy's the pastor. It's his job to go out and spread the gospel. Well, no. It's his job to equip the saints to go spread the gospel. And this man, Epaphras, no one commissioned him to be a pastor. He heard the word and went and did the work of the pastor and this was something paul found very commendable in that church that a faithful servant rose up in their midst brought them the truth that truth gave them faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god gave them hope because now they understood they have an object of faith they have something to hope in someone to hope in and this worked beautifully in that particular setting So these are the things that Paul is commending them. And then he finishes the passage with this beautiful prayer. And the prayer now starts the theme of the letter, which is the preeminence of Christ in the life of the believer. So we pick it up in verse 9. We'll read over to verse 14. And we read, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and the spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins. Wow. That's a prayer. That, that, is, a f- that is a pound cake prayer. Some prayers are more fruitcake. This is a pound cake <laughs> prayer. It's dense. It's thick. A lot of eggs, milk, butter, and everything good <laughs> in that prayer. Um, he prays first for them. He says he doesn't cease to pray for them. And the first thing he prays for them is that they would would have knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, here's the thing. Once we come to faith, there's that initial euphoria of being a person of faith. You know, once you get yourself out of the way, you can truly enjoy what it is to be a child of God. If you're still on the throne, if your hands are still on the wheel, man, that's a shaky ride. But if you've let go and you've let God come into your life, there is euphoria about that. I was euphoric when I was saved. I'm sure you were. And the one thing that we have to understand is when you come to faith, that newness of that sweet love, it's not the time to go look for yet another experience to top that one. Here's what I mean. The only way I can think about it is this. When I finally decided to date my wife, and I went to pick her up for our first date. I've, I think I've told this story before, but i got to tell it again because it it's true. It's just true. She came down the stairs. They have that kind of house where you come in, you're, you're in the foyer, and then you're looking at the stairs going up. So she's coming down the stairs, having gotten herself ready for our date. And then she realizes she forgot something. And so she's in haste. She turns around to head back up the stairs, and she trips. She trips on the step was so cute <laughs> uh, it just endeared her to me right away you know she's eager to you know to get on with the date and she tripped and oh honey I love you um and and our love grew now now if I reflected on how wonderful it was to fall in love with my wife the stupid thing would be to turn around and go try and replicate that again like immediately like okay oh that was cute that was good i love you i love you i love you oh i wonder if i can make that work somewhere else that, that would be awful and it would certainly would probably uh shall we say muddy things up in the relationship with my wife of course it would equally when we come to faith in jesus christ it's not the time to just rest in the newness of that it's a time to go deeper you see i came to To move past the initial euphoria and infatuation to a deep and abiding love of Jesus Christ so much that I wanted to just give my life to him. So thankful I was for what he did in my life that I wanted to give it back to him. But that's because I went deep into the process of knowing him. Knowing his, his general will is expressed right here. Oh, I don't know what God wants me to do. I know a place where you might find out. Now, you might say, well, my problem is very specific. It's in this little narrow area of my life. Surely the Bible doesn't talk about that. And I would probably admit, you're probably right. The Lord doesn't speak to that kind of diet, kind of job, kind of whatever the issue is. No, but what you learn when you go deep into the word of God, you learn his general will, you learn his character, and you learn that he is always with you and invites you to pray. And so by virtue of going deeper in what God has told us as his general revelation of will, he can speak to us through his spirit, his specific will in any given circumstance of our lives. It's a very powerful thing about the word of god it's a living word in the truest sense of the word now he says there in verse 10 that you may walk worthy of the lord fully pleasing him walking worthy of the lord means taking what you know and applying it notice how paul structures his letters theology doctrine application doctrine application walking worthy of the lord you've got to be walking in his will to have a walk worthy of the lord don't you that presumes that you know his will and then once you do actually putting into practice you realize that in jesus's day there were probably no people that knew the word of god better than the pharisees and so you'd say well why was jesus constantly squaring off with the pharisees well it's simply because they weren't living, they weren't walking in what they knew. The, the famous instance where Jesus and his disciples are coming through a uh, field of grain and it's a Sabbath day and they're starving and they, they take some grain from the stalks of grain and, and they eat those, that. And by the way, that's not stealing in their day. A person who was hungry, was walking by a field of crops, could for their own nourishment Take food. They can't, like, load up bushels, bring a wagon, load up a wagon. They can't do that. That's thievery. But to nourish yourself, that was, that was part of uh, the acceptable practice. But the Pharisees chastised Jesus and his disciples for that. And in Matthew 12, 7, Jesus said, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. See, Jesus is saying... Yeah, you understand every jot and tittle of the law. You know where, where to find it and what it says. But have you learned how to, to walk worthy of it, walk in the wisdom of it? That's, that was what he had against them. And we can fall into that same trap where we might be prophecy experts. We know everything that's going to happen and all that, but we're not actually going out and serving the Lord. This is one of the things we want to emphasize on next Saturday. Yeah, I'm going to help you with some prophecy that helps you understand what's going on right now. But we're not going to just sit there and get into esoteric discussions about the prophetic books. We're going to say, okay, now we know that. Here's what we need to be doing. And this is what Jesus is commending them for, to have a walk worthy of the Lord. He says, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of the Lord. When you have a knowledge of the Lord, the fruit of your walk will increase naturally. Now, he also prays that they would have godly character. Verses 11 and 12. strengthen with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and longsuffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He is praying that they would have godly character. When we receive the word of God in humility, God starts the process that we know of as sanctification. Sanctification is that lifelong process that conforms our character into the character of Christ. You may say that God instills in us a GPS system, God's positioning system. And what he does through his word and word, word and spirit, is he starts to show us who we exactly are. And he shows us how who we are doesn't square with who christ is and he starts to motivate us to change the aspects of our character that we might reflect jesus character has been described to me as what you do when nobody's looking everybody has a facade that they can put on and and be in a appear in a certain way before others but when there's nobody looking what is what is your decision process guiding you to do or not do? And that's, that's character. And so he prays that they would have godly character. And if you look in uh, Galatians chapter 5, what you'll see there is all those character fruits that begin with love. And then the love, the joy, the long-suffering, all of that flows from a godly character. Now Paul winds up this prayer in verses 13 and 14 by glorifying god and there's nothing more glorifying about god than to rehearse or to recite what he has done for us this is something that can you can use to encourage yourselves you could even pray these three these two verses verses 13 and 14 there's four things he calls out that christ has done for you and they're all amazing he has delivered us from the power of darkness he has conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins. You really got to ponder those four things to understand how great is our God. Delivered us from the power of darkness. We understand now perhaps more than any other time in our lives over these last several years that the world is in the, under the power of darkness. Darkness is creeping in from every corner of our lives. And I think that the... The, the pace at which it's creeping in is picking up. And we have been delivered from that. And that's why I say, we, as much as we can be troubled about what we see going on around us, we have confidence, we have hope, we have faith because we know the truth and we have an, an object of faith who is the man, Jesus Christ, who is fully God, who has delivered us from the power of darkness. He's conveyed us into the kingdom of his son, of his love. We are in Christ's kingdom now. We are not citizens of this earth. In a real sense, we are spiritual citizens of the kingdom of God. He says that we have redemption through his blood. We have been taken out. We have been taken out of that sinful state. We've been given a new nature. We've been given a new destiny. And we have the forgiveness of our sins. So coupling this great encouragement with this wonderful and awesome prayer, what a, what a start to this letter if you want to convince somebody of the preeminence of christ i can't imagine a better way to do it than to encourage them that they have found him as their lord and savior they are growing in him they are bearing fruit and now to pray over them these wonderful things that all that they've experienced up till now would not only continue but would be magnified and in the magnification of these things we glorify and magnify christ My prayer for you is right here. I'm not going to come up with anything new. It's right here. It's so good. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for your word and its truth, God. We thank you that we have Jesus Christ as the object of our faith. We have faith in him, pure and simple. We have faith in what he did, not in what we do, not in what we said, not in what we think. We know, Lord, that our Sin nature was broken in the Garden of Eden, and we all possess it. And yet, Lord, you've redeemed us from it. You've brought us out of darkness. You've made us citizens of your kingdom. You've you've taken away our sins, Lord. You've done all these things because you love us dearly. And Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Lord, I pray that the love that we have for you, and the love you have for us, would be reflected by us to the world. Let people know that coming to Christ is not a lot of don't do this and don't do that. It's all about receiving the one, the one who gave his all that we might be his. Thank you, God, for meeting us here today. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen, amen. God bless you.